Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Randy Laced, who is the editor of The 80s Resurrected, Essays on the Decade, in popular culture then and now. Full disclosure to all listening that I have a chapter in this book on the television show, The Americans, um, and we can talk about that. Uh, but I wanted to first introduce Randy Lace and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project on the 1980s. Hi, Lily. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's really a delight to be here and to talk about this wonderful book that is so wonderful and came together so so nicely and beyond any of my own expectations. Um, how it came together? Well, well, I guess when we first started putting it together, it was several years ago. Um, it was sort of the, the thankfully waning days of the Trump presidency. And um, not all, and a, there were a number of '80s reboot kind of franchises that had uh, emerged into popular consciousness. Specifically, Stranger Things was probably the biggest one, but there was also a couple of movies that they made of Stephen King's It, and um, a number of other, uh, you know, uh, The Americans, obviously, and The Goldbergs, and uh, you know, so many different narratives that had been set in the '80s and that used the 1980s not just as a setting for a narrative, but as kind of a, a thematic device that provided, uh, you know, sort of a historical political commentary on the narrative, whether it was happening in the 1980s or whether it was sort of referring to the 1980s in one way or another through being a reboot or something like that. So there was all this going on. And then, of course, there was the Trump phenomenon going on as well. Uh, and in his um. 2016 campaign, of course, the Make America Great Again slogan was a throwback to Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign. And Trump's identity itself is deeply rooted in the 1980s, where he is kind of like was in the 1980s, one of the signature figures of that decade that lent it uh, some of its most you know distinctive qualities. Um, not that he was just someone who happened to be famous during the 80s, but he, in many ways, incarnated the 80s at the time as, you know, a, a 
you know, a, a time of yuppie professional, you know, uh, New York based uh, real estate entrepreneurs um, living this specific kind of lifestyle, performing this specific kind of expectation of masculinity and wealth and American identity. Um, and then um, when uh, he went on to become, you know, a successful presidential candidate, uh, he, I think, brought along with him or maybe exposed something that was already there, this kind of like background relevance of the 1980s that has never gone away and that had never gone away, even, you know, before uh, Trump and before Stranger Things and before uh, some of these other uh, more conspicuous instances of 80s nostalgia. So all that was going on. Um, I thought it was very interesting, you know, from a as someone who uh, writes about popular culture and uh, the relationship between narrative and politics to explore this. And it was originally actually part of a longer suggest suggested for a longer kind of series of books that would be like that would look at every single decade in the 20th century and think not just about the decade itself, but about how that decade had been represented in subsequent decades. And the way that, like, so the example, the, the you know, the 30s or the, the 40s or the 50s or the 60s, the way that they have kind of taken on those, a meaning of their own and that those meanings have evolved and interacted with like contemporary history in ways that are very revealing and interesting and have been very influential, I think. Um, so there's this whole idea about like, you know, so we can make a whole series of books about all of these different decades of the 20th century. And then I was thinking a little bit more too about how decades themselves emerged especially in the late 20th century as a heuristic device, as a way of like categorizing the recent past and thinking about specifically American history in these kind of tidy little chapters, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, each one with their own specific like hairstyles, their own specific like outfits, their own specific movies and music styles that were like, you know, that sort of, you know, represent those different decades. And my thinking about the 1980s was that you know, even though I decided to abandon this project of like looking at all of these other decades, at least for now, I remember. Uh, but um, uh, what was interesting to me about the 80s specifically is it was kind of like not only uh, was it a very specific instance of this phenomenon of a decade kind of like becoming like a thing or a creature or, you know, this arbitrary 10 year span of history suddenly coalescing into this um, into this kind of cultural force. But also that the 80s itself kind of epitomized that whole way of thinking about history, that instead of having like, you know, the history of the of, you know, ecological justice or the history of the women's movement or the history of the Cold War, or the history of, you know, any sort of like macro historical trend, suddenly history, you know, is sort of a Baudrillardian sense in the 1980s very specifically becomes reduced to like some fads and fashions and, and popular songs and, you know, popular movies. And that 80s culture itself is sort of like this orbital entity that escapes, you know, the, you know, history altogether and becomes its own kind of collection of junk, which to me is epitomized in the scene in Back to the Future Part 2, where Marty the McFly goes into a 1980s nostalgia restaurant in 2015 and sees the way that the future has represented his present um so I don't know. So all of these things I thought were very interesting. And I thought there was like just so much to work with in terms of thinking about the 1980s and thinking about the way that it's kind of like, you know, uh, been represented in different kinds of modes too. Um, in the Trumpian nostalgic mode, or, you know, I guess what Svetlana Boyum calls 
the restorative mode, the mode of like trying to bring it back. But then also in many interesting ways in this kind of more reflective or critical or transformative mode where texts look back at the 80s and identify it as a, you know, sort of a, a, a time of original sin or a, a moment of, uh, of injustice and obliviousness that future decades are in the project of trying to correct and, you know, re-repair. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes those two meanings are also like very interestingly like Intertwined, yeah. in ways that are like, again, just like, you know, just a treasure trove of stuff for people who like to look carefully at narratives and uh, popular culture. So, 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 you know, again, like this is, so these are all kind of the, the, the thoughts that I was having going into putting this book together. And I also thought too, that, you know, for all the thoughts that I have about, you know, what I think about this phenomenon of the 1980s being recreated and reimagined and reflected on through all these different sorts of media, um, that I thought it would be, you know, it was such a big topic that it really lends itself to being a discussion among a global, you know, collection of scholars, all approaching this question from sort of different disciplinary perspectives and looking at different kinds of media and different kinds of texts and narratives and approaches and critical, uh, you know, uh, insights. And so the result of the book as a whole manages to be this kind of dialogic conversation, this multi-perspectival, uh, you know, kaleidoscope of ways of thinking about representations of the 1980s. And um, I was very happy with uh, the fact that we were able to get so many wonderful, articulate, thoughtful, and diverse perspectives on this really interesting topic. Yeah, and I just wanted to to ask you a little bit more about the way you construct this consciousness about the 1980s. And and your introduction and and your discussion just now also talks about the fact that in the 20th century there was this like bite-sized decade experience that um, you know, is punctuated a decade ends in 1929 with you know, the Wall Street crash and the start of the Great Depression. Um, and and then at the same time, you have, you know, Reagan's election in 1980 um, and the fall of the Soviet Empire in 1989, so that there are these historical demarcations that also help us, if we want to think about it temporally, to break up the, the sort of um, calendar years um, but you're, you specifically talk about the fact that the eighties themselves were nostalgically sort of embedded with themselves that the, the, the 1980s, which I lived through, I was young, but I did live through the 1980s. Yeah, me too. I mean, that's part <laughs> that it's like, you know, a chance to sort of like auto semi-autobiographical too. Exactly. And, and so that, you know, every time I see some of these references to, you know, sort of the the Reagan speeches about the evil empire, I remember that happening or the day after the movie, the day after. Um, but what is it specifically about the 1980s? You sort of started to give us a little bit of a window in that is important to think about, not just as another sort of nostalgic period that we're looking at now, but that itself was important to think about. Uh, yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, as, as you as we kind of like talked about while you were asking your question, there is like 
part of the explanation for why the 1980s have become suddenly mysteriously newly popular in the in the early 2020s. You know, people talk about talking about that often refer to this thing of like, well, you know, people who are reaching a certain age and who have like expendable income, disposable income, they want to buy narratives that remind them of their salad days as young people and their, you know, teenage and, you know, pre-adolescent days, you know, being surrounded by 80s stuff and kind of having a chance to travel back in time and relive, you know, moments in their in their past. And of course, as I was saying before, you know, there is this sort of nostalgic element to especially to like show like the Goldbergs, where that seems like the whole purpose of the show is just to kind of like revel in this, you know, this kind of atavistic or backwards traveling kind of consciousness. So there's that. But but uh, in addition to um, simply reminding middle aged people of their glory days of their youth, I think your question points to something that is unique about the 1980s in a historical perspective which is that it is like sort of the birth of neoliberalism. And in many ways, uh, you know, uh, because of the policies that Reagan enacted in the early and mid 1980s has shaped sort of the like, you know, material world that we live in economically, geopolitically and domestically politically. Um, uh, it's still the Reagan's tagline that, uh, the worst thing, the worst 11 words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That remains sort of the guiding principle of the conservative movement to this day. And of course, the most recent uh, 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 Republican presidential debate uh, took place in the Reagan library and all of the candidates were vying to try to uh, claim their, their, you know, their, their ability to be the heir to Reagan. The Reagan's and the Reagan era and the Reagan presidency and the, everything associated with all of that stuff, including sort of the pop cultural ephemera of the period that are very closely in interesting ways associated and af affiliated with the Reagan thing, meaning like, the, you know, the Trump thing, the Rocky thing, the E.T. thing, the Rubik's Cube thing, you know, the Van Halen thing, you know, all of those like sort of 80s things. In a way, they sort of like line up, you know, temperamentally or like ideologically behind this certain kind of like strong arm vision of uh, trickle down American prosperity uh, in this kind of you know, neoliberal mode of, you know, the, of, of laissez-faire economics or something, you know, even again, even at the same time as the Republican party has actually drifted very far away from many of the stances that are associated with Reagan, there's that certain, almost like the aura is more important than the policies and the aura remains a you know critical cultural force again and not just in conservative politics either but in i think you know not in, and not just in politics alone but in so many of the ways that we define uh what it means to be american and who knows maybe those two things are like connected with each other right that there's like the two things being like the personal like psychological nostalgia of individual human beings like striving to relive their vanished innocence in a time before they hit puberty, and then also a nation seeking an identity that has like, you know, some coherence and stability and is associated with values that, you know, that, that people respond emotionally to. Those two uh, things, again, like it kind of goes to show how important the intersections are between mass culture and political culture. And uh, even though, you know, sometimes people think it is like 
nonsensical to do like, you know, this like, you know, deep uh, cultural criticism where we, you know, spend uh, hundreds and thousands of words analyzing some episode of a TV show in terms of its like, you know, historical and political and cultural relevance. I think that kind of work is exactly very critical to understanding history, especially the history of the last, you know, 120 years or something of mass cultural movements and, and mass entertainment. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think, so again, so the eighties is important for all these different reasons, psychological reasons, political reasons, and I don't know, also just kind of like, almost like, you know, existential reasons, it's almost like, you know, as if the eighties like are still, you know, like, like we're still in the eighties in a lot of like strange ways. Uh, and when, you know, reboots of star Wars and, uh, the, the, the ubiquity of Donald Trump, it just kind of feels like, you know, we're like never left. Like, it's like this, like, uh, you know, some kind of a post-mortem, you know, trance or, or, uh, or a hallucination that you can't wake up from or something like that. And, and you're right in terms of like, there is all of this, um, emphasis in popular culture, particularly vi- televisual popular culture with regard to reboots and redevelopments of um, of the shows from those past eras, uh, but also the the grounding of the ideas of the 1980s, as the book is about, um, in in so many different forms of popular culture artifact. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, and sort of um, as you put out a call for papers for this book, and you started to get um, chapters in, you had a lot of different stuff representing different parts of the 80s. You have you have um, Dallas Buyers Club, which focuses on the the issues around AIDS, HIV um, and, you know, medical solutions. You have um, the Breakfast Club, which is, you know, John Hughes's kind of dominance of the 1980s in terms of popular culture. Um so how did you sort of sort through all of this to to sort of make it into a whole? Um, you, I wanted to try. Thank you for pointing that out. It's, I think uh, the one of the things that I really was hoping that we could do with this book would be to try to provide as many different kind of media as possible and show like the different, not just that, you know, not just kind of do the same chapter over and over again about like the 80s were big and now they're big again or something like that, but different ways of like thinking about the, the different issues uh, the, as you say, we, we have like you know some issues about uh, LGBTQ issues, uh, race, uh, you know economics, class, um, and all the different uh, you know kind of cultural or political issues. But then also we have a chapter about uh, dolls, and a chapter about video games, and a chapter about other kinds of media. Um, obviously, television shows and movies. Uh, but also these other kinds of media that show kind of the the immersive effect of this phenomenon that it's not just something in uh, in visual culture or in TV and narrative that it uh, that it kind of permeates and um, into all these different other areas as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And and so you have a great assortment of chapters, um, and I've read through most of them. 
Um, and so I, uh, I, I always like to ask editors of books this question. You know, you put out a call for papers. That's how I got in this book. I responded to the call for papers and I love watching the Americans. Um, and so that seemed like a no brainer to me. Um, but it, as the chapters were rolling in, what was surprising to you that people were writing about or what did you learn about the 1980s from some of the chapters that you hadn't anticipated to sort of come to see? I was surprised by the variety of the different approaches that if you look through the chapters, some of them uh, kind of celebrate a nostalgic look back at the 1980s. Some of them are very extremely, extremely critical of the 1980s. And a lot of our kind of like in between um, are trying to like evaluate or negotiate the space between uh, whether we kind of feel good about this 1980s or whether we are horrified by them. Um, and I was, again, the, the whole point of doing this project as a edited volume rather than as a monograph was to be able to capture that variety and to try to think through not only how many different ways there are of thinking about this subject, but also this sort of different kind of, again, like ambiguous interconnections in the way that sometimes, uh, and it, you know, I mean, there's a good chapter about uh, Stranger Things on this issue about the way that um, that the rep the nostalgic representation of the of the past um, can blend into a critical you know a critique of the past and then the other way around too that in the very process of critiquing the past you wind up discovering that you're like being nostalgic and and weepy eyed about of you know something that you are you know that you miss and that you feel you know homesick for um and so I was you know again I wasn't really sure what would happen when I put out the CFP, but not only was I delighted with the, you know, the range of different sort of media that, uh, that the contributors discussed, but also the different kind of temperamental approaches that the writers, uh, evoked in their discussion of the 1980s. And uh, in many cases, uh, I think, you know, the writers, you know, are the same generation is you and me where they're like thinking not just about the 1980s as some kind of like vanished historical period but as like a as a critical part of their own psychology and as a part of like their own like you know being um you know obviously you know one of the things about mass culture in general is this sense that it kind of like you know shapes you in ways that you can never really fully understand that you know having grown up in a certain cultural milieu you know, and even slash especially one as absurd as like the 1980s in quotation marks, uh, you know, it like, you know, has subcutaneous effects on the way you perceive the world, the way you think about identity. And definitely one of the things that we try to highlight in the book was the way it influences the way people talk about uh, race and gender and sexuality. Um, one of the effects, I think, of a decades-based historiography where you're thinking about the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, is that it does tend to foreground a uh, white, middle-class, consumerist perspective and to occlude the other perspectives and other ways of thinking about it. So, I mean, and it was interesting, too. One of the interesting things that I wasn't really anticipating but suddenly became very clear in the last section of the book as I edited and, you know, worked on these chapters 
was that, uh, you know, while the eighties for, you know, in most mass culture is thought of as this, you know, time of celebration and, you know, giddy, you know, spending, uh, consumer confidence and, uh, and stuff like that, um, that of in the LGBTQ community, community, uh, the 1980s is like, you know, an apocalypse. It's a time of, uh, you know, complete upheaval and, uh, disaster. And so a lot of the, you know, um, some of the chapters in the last third of the book, the last section that is devoted to kind of social justice issues, um, treats this question about the way that, uh, the, um, more, again, more nostalgic and bubbly ideas about the 1980s both cover up and also intersect with in interesting ways this kind of like you know very disturbing other side of the 90s and there's something also similar happens uh in african-american you know from the african-american perspective where the 1980s is the you know the high water mark of uh of the war on drugs and uh the uh sets the mass incarceration agenda uh that's going to be that's going to dominate black communities throughout the coming decades and decimate those communities. And so, um, uh, again, at the same time, whereas there's like a white 1980s, but there's also like the black and gay 1980s. And, you know, you could talk about women's issues too, where the, the ERA was defeated and women's issues uh, and women's perspectives in general suddenly took this very abrupt backseat in this, amid this Reaganite backlash against, uh, against the women's movement. Um, so again, in, in some ways, the, maybe the white consumerist celebration of the eighties exists for the purpose of diminishing those other narratives and sort of overwhelming them or like drowning them out with its clamor and electric guitar wanging. Um, I think that that's something, again, a very interesting phenomenon goes on. And I think, again, the only way to capture that, you know, that polyvocalism or that complexity is through a book like this, where all of these different authors from all these different perspectives compile and compare their 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 points of view in ways that reveal this uh all these different subtexts and i mean it goes also to the way that we sometimes have this quote nostalgia for like the 1950s as a, a period the post-war period um but that also includes the experience of particularly black people women certainly those um members of the lgbt community because they were not experiencing the same kind of freedom and and you know sort of middle class growth that you know is often the the reference point for the the fabulousness of the 1950s yeah no i mean that's a great and you could say the same thing about the 60s too i mean there's like a, a white 60s and a black 60s and they're two very different realities 70s i mean again like it's yeah. kind of the thing like once you start like you know realizing that that's one of the maybe the historical functions or the popular functions of the decade-based historiography that it like it serves that hidden agenda and of course the 50s too is interesting because in the relation to the 80s because of the rest of the 50s and the 80s are these kind of like weird twin decades where um so much of what the 80s is is itself an attempt to you know recreate the some again, some vanished or illusory idea of what the 1950s not was, but is like taken to be uh, like if you didn't know anything aside from like black and white sitcoms or something like that. If you derived your entire, you know, historical reference from things like, you know, from Leave it to Beaver, Leave it to Beaver or something like that, then that's the 1950s that is like, you know, being, uh, you know, by uh, be being 
reanimated by Reagan's presidency in the same way that Trump, you know, sought to reanimate the Reagan presidency. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm really intrigued by the particularness of the 1980s that you have, you know, pulled out not only in your introduction but in the chapters themselves. Um, that you know moves beyond just the sort of flatness of the Reagan 80s, as it's often referred to, um, and the shoulder pads and um, and the sort of electronic music. Um, that there's there's a lot more to thinking about the 80s than just those sort of like three or four things that also are often the complete touchstones of that decade. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is the um, those uh, all those different kinds of like you know little fashion things and music things, and uh, they uh, I think that they're they're so interesting because not not only because of what we just said about how they managed to kind of like sweep away like the the grittier history, but also because of the way that they kind of take on a life of their own and become uh you know uh, in ways that still like contain that those other meanings they wind up like escaping the the um you know the historical context and becoming this sort of like almost you know as if the 80s uh, is not a historical period but this you know kind of a state of mind which again is something sort of a theme that runs throughout you know the goldbergs and uh other 1980s nostalgia type franchises so you said this was originally supposed to be part of a series that looked at every decade but Perhaps it's not part of a series that looks at every decade. Well, I don't know. Well, I mean, it could, it could, it could be. I mean, it's, I was thinking, I was. If it might be a series. I would start with the eighties because, like I said, the eighties is like to me the quintessential twentieth century decade. Um, and then I was, I was thought, well, maybe I'll wait a few years. I'll see if the nineties becomes a thing. And I don't know if the nineties really ever like became like a thing. Like every once in a while, you see like some reference to the nineties, but it doesn't have the same like you know the same for the same resonance. As, as again, the 80s or the 70s or the 60s, to be sure, or the 50s, uh, 30s, 20s, you know, those all those decades like have like, you know, a real like good marketing arm that like allows them to like have this very specific kind of brand. Uh, the 90s, not so much. And then I was thinking, too, about like, um, you know, what happened to that? You know, people don't refer to the zeros as much. And at least in my experience, as like their own decade, although they were a very interesting, you know, kind of period of the war on terror and defining like sort of like bookended by 9-11 and had, uh, you know, maybe like the Obama era or something like that. There's, but people don't really think about it for what, at least in my experience, people don't talk about the, the zeros and the teens, you know, now that we're done with the teens, like what is the identity of the teens? It doesn't have like a stable, you know, semantic value in our, you know, kind of cultural imagination, at least it's how it, maybe it will come that way. And I have a few different theories about why that might be. I don't know. I guess there's probably a lot of different theories proliferating about that phenomenon i mean on the one hand it's like kind of just hard to refer to the zeros it just doesn't have like it doesn't have a thing it's just it's like you know, and then you know, now that we've been through the 20th century all the decade names are like taken so now we're in the 20s but it's like you know confusing if you say the 20s you know 1920s or the 2020s uh, but also i mean i think maybe it also has to do with just sort of the the you know it used to be that there were there was like a certain rhythm of cycles and political movements too that you mentioned in one of your comments there is kind of like a certain way of justifying the 80s based on well in 1980 world we can realize it in 1989 this important thing happened and there are different ways that like those those decades do kind of cohere 
in sort of this very convincing, almost like kind of gestalt illusion or something like if you once you start to look at it that way, you realize you can kind of like make the argument that those, that those historical periods are self-contained units or something like that. But then, um, uh, I don't know, maybe the, the, the pace or the, the, the rhythm of cultural change has either slowed down or sped up in such a way that the decade is no longer the, 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 the relevant unit that, you know, there was like, you know, the war on terror era and the social media era and the, the Trump era and the, you know, smartphone era or something like that. But those things are all sort of like, you know, those are major cultural changes. But they're not, but they're not specific to a decade. Like, not right, you know, the right way or something like that. Like we need like a, a five-year unit or something like or something shorter because maybe that's because cultural pace, cultural change has like sped up so much maybe because of like the internet and cell phones and stuff like that. Uh, and also maybe, and I also have a theory, this is my, my, my last theory for now about this, it's just that, that things stop changing, that it still feels like we live in the 1980s because like, you know, the, uh, the corporate, you know, whatever, like, or, you know, overlords have decided that the consumerist trends that are in place now are like good enough that we can have like basically like same fashion, the same like political ideas, same like, you know, uh, you know, that we don't need to buy, uh, we don't need to make up new kinds of things because we can just find borrow stuff from 40 years ago and, and rebrand it. And, uh, that that's, you know, that's good enough. And that, uh, maybe in important ways, uh, that the kind of change that you see throughout the 20th century, where every decade has like a whole new vibe, is no law is like outmoded. That now we're just all in this one kind of soup, like a like kind of social media, uh, internet kind of facilitated soup of of cultural meanings that borrow from the past and that you know trade and interweave, but without ever like really like taking a stand and shaping the culture in a new like visibly you know, visible direction or something like that. I, I'm, so there's like different theories about what happened to the decade. I don't know. And there's probably a lot more. No, I mean, I think those, that certainly makes sense. And, you know, and as, as I always talk to my students about it, I, you know, here is your cell phone, which has all the knowledge in the world and it's in your back pocket. That's kind of a revolutionary understanding of things. Hmm. Um, but you don't necessarily tie that to any one thing. It's just like, here is the cell phone era. And then we had the period before. But it's not mapped onto a particular decade, and it's just the way we function now. Um, and at the same time, it does so much too to just like like you say, like it's not like you know it's sort of atemporal. It's kind of like God, this sort of like you know post historical thing where it's not like it doesn't change. It just is everything. You know, everything is there on that cell phone. You know, everything that uh, that's going to happen, that has happened, that you need to know, that will ever happen to you, and like there's not the sense of like you know it's all going to change uh, in a you know now that the calendar has flipped over to a new year or a new decade. Yeah. So what are you working on now, Randy? Um, oh, well, uh, that's, uh, thanks for asking. Um, the, our latest uh, kind of edited volume publication is about, is called Figures of Freedom. And it's very specifically related to cultural politics. Um, we are looking at 20 first century narratives so novels television shows and movies from basically from the last 25 years or 23 years or whatever it is and uh we are examining the way that those narratives represent the theme of freedom specifically in an american context uh the idea here is that of course freedom has always been a shibboleth in american 
cultural discourse and political discourse way back to the revolution and before uh, throughout you know uh, 20th century the, the idea of freedom has taken on many different kinds of lives and had many different political uh, roles that it played but then in the 21st century specifically begins of course catastrophically with 9/11. And the post 9-11 discourse about freedom, and of course, the George W. Bush administration made a big thing about that the war on terror was a war for freedom and that the enemies of America hated our freedom and that there had to be freedom fries and freedom isn't free and all this you know, free rhetoric, which continues to animate conservative discourse and just the, the Freedom Caucus just uh, just dethroned the Speaker of the House uh, there. You know, they borrow that term from the sort of George W. Bush era conservative saber rattling. And of course, on the other side of the spectrum too, uh, there's all sorts of liberal attempts to try to use the, the language of freedom. So, uh, and at the same time, uh, as you know, that freedom discourse has become so center, so centralized in our uh, language, there's also all these interesting social trends that very much impact how people think and feel about the nature of freedom including, you know, social media, surveillance, neoliberal, like, you know, economics, uh, the, uh, you know, the rise of genetics and AI and, uh, you know, people's like sense that they're being manipulated by their phones and like, you know, all sorts of different ways that, that, uh, that, uh, corporate culture, uh, manipulates people. And then of course, uh, you know, in the, um, the, uh, impression that, uh, you know, in, in, race relations that like you know people are dealing with unconscious bias that there's implicit bias that people aren't even aware they're not even free to be racist or anti-racist that they just uh, mechanically perpetuate certain stances or or attitudes or assumptions and you know all these so all these things are kind of like reshaping and i, I think in a lot of ways kind of refining and making more ambiguous the nature of what it means to think about freedom um, no longer so much a transcendental value as a complex series of negotiations uh, that involve, you know, multiple partners. So, you know, all these interesting things, and in a way, maybe I think the best way to understand what's going on with freedom, of course, and freedom is really important too. Like, you know, you can't be a human being without caring passionately about how to be free and what it means to be free. So to me, I think one of the best ways of thinking through this enormously important and complex question is to look specifically at narratives which are always about freedom and which always like challenge us to think about uh how characters achieve freedom how how artists uh wield their freedom how listeners our audiences uh manage their responses to narratives how narratives themselves both delimit and expand the way you know what is possible for human human beings so narratives are crucial to freedom. And again, and maybe the best way to understand this very complex and uh, is to invite, as we did with the 80s thing, a few different a global cast of accomplished scholars in cultural studies from around the world who have contributed their own perspectives on what it means to be free in the 21st century and how our popular narratives help us to understand and work through these complex questions. It sounds fascinating. I really look forward to reading this book when it comes out, and I hope maybe you'll come back on the New Books Network and talk to me about it. I would be very delighted to be invited to do that. 
Um, excellent. So I'd like to thank you, Randy Laced, for joining me today to talk about the 1980s Resurrected, Essays on the Decade in Popular Culture Then and Now, published by McFarlane in 2023, I think. Um, and I know it's available at the McFarlane website. Do you have a brick and mortar store with an online presence to which you would like to give a shout out? Uh, no, I, unfortunately, I do not. So that, then the just go to the McFarlane website. That's great. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Randy, to talk about the 1980s. My pleasure. Thank you. Lily.